0: Thank <laughs> you. Mercury switches are going on on us around here? I will award the brass figleggy with bronze oak leaf to any lonesome traveler on the yellow brick road of mediocrity who wishes to rise above the mire and the muck of common listenerdom who can identify who, what, and where was the phrase used, are you ready, has Where was that used? Who used it? In what context was it used? Why was it used? Yes, all these mystical questions are those that should be answered before we can continue with tonight's effort. Bring it up there, Fred. Hey, Tom. Oh, well, one more thing uh, as a disclaimer. Uh, this program tonight is being done under strong protest. I have filed an official protest with the league president. We will continue. We will carry on until the decisions Shut Oh, keep the love light burning. Yeah, Be careful. Mr. Shepard tonight is filled with love and compassion for his fellow man. And uh, no wonder. Let's see. Here's a note here. It's a uh, full page out. Have you seen this ad? Are there certain ads that are uh, with you follow up making you know what I mean by uh, sick-making? Now, uh, what was it that Dorothy uh, Parker said? It's enough to make you flow up? She was referring, of course, to Winnie the Pooh. And, uh... <laughs> oh, wow. And there, oh, yeah, this is the kind of uh, ad I, I suspect that would appeal to those who are hung on Winnie the Pooh in Eeyore. Uh, there is a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. Have you seen that ad? There's a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. Yes, and there she stands, brave, unashamed, staring at the sunset. And behind her, like a prop, is this little native village, which is merely one of the accessories to her exciting grape treading life. I repeat, there's a certain kind of woman who'd rather press grapes than clothes. And then down at the bottom, it says, photographed in Cuzco, Peru, one of the difficult countries. How would you like to be classified as a difficult country by the New Yorker? And uh, even more than that, by pack and pack and pack and pack and pack and pack. Uh, what was the famous line? Who was the famous line who was writing about that store? And he wrote to his daughter. Who wanted more money to pay the bill, see? And he says, So, dear so and so, I got your letter with the bill in it from peck and pack and peck and pack 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 and he filled two pages with peck, pack, pack and pack and peck. Who was that? What what writer was this? We will give you the brass figure if you think you know your American literature. All right. This is Gene Shepherd broadcasting from the heart of America. One of the world's more come on, let's go, one of the world's more difficult countries. Swing up that thing. You can tell it's Friday night. And there's blood in the eye. Lieutenant, why is it I'm the only one who knows who wrote that line? Pack and pack and pack and pack and pack and pack. Why? Why do I have a huge garbage can of a mine? I do not remember Pearl Harbor. I don't remember the Battle of 1066. I don't even know what date it happened on. But I remember little tidbits of life like that. There you go. Uh, that's enough. That's enough. But keep that in the there. We will need that for later things. Oh, here, listen to this. Uh, would you please uh, hold that banjo music there, ready and ready to hit it hard? Okay, listen. to This one. Beeville, Texas. Ed Singleton, who was hanged in 1877, willed his skin to the prosecuting attorney who convicted him. What a fantastic Perry Mason episode that would make. I repeat, willed his skin to the prosecuting attorney who convicted him. Singleton directed that his skin be made into a drumhead that was to be beaten to the tune of old Molly Hare in front of the B County Courthouse on each anniversary of his hanging. Oh, there's a man with style. Yeah. Uh, the only thing is that the item doesn't tell whether or not they went along with his will, unfortunately. Have you ever had, when you were a kid, did you have that myth that the last words of anybody, you had to do it? That whatever the last words, you just had to do it. <laughs> you know, this is one of those folk myths that kids have, you know, that the... Oh yeah, sure I, I remember as a kid all, all the time you know, when when you're playing when you're playing um, with the uh, with the guns and stuff and you're either the bad guys or the good guys. you remember playing bad guys and good guys? Are there any ex good guys out there who turned bad in later years <laughs> or or are you at that stage in life where you can't tell whether you're a good guy or a bad guy? not quite. well, uh, when we were playing good guys and bad guys, I can remember falling to the ground heroically and practicing getting shot dramatically uh, you know, you lay there like this your arms out. I suppose you're aware that there's nothing that an actor likes more than to die on stage providing he has a lot of lines before he dies on stage I have known actors who've been dead off stage they carry him out and they carry him out the other side you know, and I say there goes the body <laughs> oh, I'll never forget, you know, sad, sad thing to talk about actors. Since uh, we want to talk about the business here, uh, people always like to hear the inside of the, the business. This friend of mine uh, used to carry around this little case that had all of his credits in, uh, all the things he did. And all the things that he did consisted of things like, for example, he had a big blown-up picture of the time that he was on the U.S. Steel Hour. And he'd take it out. He'd say, well, of course, son. Uh, uh this uh was when I was doing the u s steel hour, and you saw four hundred GIs lying on a prop hillside, all of them dead, all stretched out see with a uh, you know dirt all over them. And you could see his foot and he said that's me that was uh US steel. of course I worked with Sidney Lamette on that one and uh uh here here's when uh, I uh, did the Mr. Peeper show, and he would take this one out and here's a classroom of fifty eight kids or fifty eight people say and Wally Cox is up in front of the class, and he's, he's teaching the class. And you see an algebra problem on the board. And you see all these guys with the hands up. He says, uh, uh, There I am there. I'm uh, standing behind the guy with the big ears and the glasses. You, can't, you can see my shoulder there. That's me. Uh, of course, I uh, work with John Frankenheimer on that one. The whole Frank calls me all the time when he wants somebody to sit behind guys with big ears. I'm very good at that. I raise my hand. Now, uh, this one here is one I did at uh, the Kraft Music Hall. And it shows a train, blow-up of a train. And you know how the interior of the uh, car, where the hero and the heroine are walking down the aisle of the car, they've just gotten on the train. There's 45 guys sitting there reading the Wall Street Journal. He says, so that's me there with the derby hat. There, just for the... Well, today, that guy is one of the top movie stars in the business. All of a sudden, he made it all the way, just to the top, all the way to the top of the world, and I saw him about a month ago, and I said, Say, do you remember when you were carrying around the pictures of the time you played the dead soldier in the scene on John Frankenheimer's drama D Day? said, Gee, I don't remember that. Who told you that stuff? You're making that. Oh, come on. You're kidding me. You're making that. And I realized that he had erased the whole world, a whole world outside of his world. He erased it, Say, You know, speaking of whole worlds, last night. I was on the Merv Griffin show, and um, uh, this is a fascinating world. These TV shows—you can you can judge the TV show by the amount of hangers-on that are behind the scenes. There's a great horde of of human jackdaws, a great horde of of human. Oh, sure, I'll, I'll never forget the the first night I came to New York and I got involved, you know, with the with the world of the comic and the world of the humorous and all that. And I'm down at Lindy's. And, uh, of course, that's, you go through that going to Lindy's phase when you're first coming to New York. And I'm sitting in, in, the, in Lindy's with this friend of mine. We got a pastrami sandwich. And, and uh, he's a comic, so he's not a very successful one. Got a pastrami sandwich, and I got a, I got a uh, big uh, roast beef sandwich. We're sitting there. And all of a sudden, this flying wedge came in. If you can imagine, 37 people coming in through the swinging doors at once in unison. They managed it. I don't know how they did it. This little swinging door, all of them came through at once. A whole human flying wedge of little guys. And they're laughing uproariously. And you can see their, their hats bobbing up and down. They've got the white on white ties. They've got the, the duck's panties, haircuts sticking way out in the back. You know, they've got sideburns all the way down to their knees. They've got camel hair coats. And this famous comic was coming in with this coterie. His little portable audience that he carries with him, and uh, they settle down like a great herd of starling. You can hear their wings go. They settle down at the center table, and the kingpin is right in the middle, like a giant human toad. And everything he would do, he'd say, like, oh, pass the mustard. So, oh, 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 is he really on tonight? Oh, he's just great. <laughs> okay, man, here's the mustard. <laughs> say, wait a minute. Uh, bring him some more catch ketchup, please. <laughs> Whoa. And these fantastic crowd of human stylists quacking and yelling. <laughs> and and uh, my friend sat next to me, see, my friend, the second-rate comic, and he says to me, well, he says, you know, one day I've just got to do it. And I said, what? No, what do you got to do? He says, uh, I've just got to go out and hire myself at least 25 toadies." He says, "I've got to run and uh, just go out there and have them run the interference for me and trail out after me and and circle around me like a large crowd of human satellites just circling around. Well last night I'm, I'm sitting backstage and, and you could hear in all the other, all the other dressing rooms this, this cacophony of of, uh, human, uh, well, they're starlings. They really are like starlings. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain they talk through the side of their beak. And, uh, yeah, they're they're really like that, see. And and they're sniping butts and yelling and hollering and scavenging and squeaking. And and, uh, I can hear them in the other dressing rooms, especially one, which I will not even go into. There's a wild scene there. Uh, Of course, there was a special kind of human starling in that other dressing room. There was more twittering. And fluttering than there was cawing and cackling. They're a different kind of starling. And so they're, they're, uh, they're down there at the other end and I'm sitting in my dressing room all by myself on that leatherette chair and all of a sudden the door opens and in walks a guy. It's an eerie thing to meet somebody and to be involved and to sit and talk to somebody who has always been mythical to you. I've often wondered, yeah, you know, mythical. But I mean mythical, it's a kind of a creature that is part of your world so much that you just accept them as part of the world. Like, like say, uh, Spencer Tracy. You know, he's lost, the, he's no longer a real human being. He's Spencer Tracy. It's like the sun or the moon or, uh, you know, the, the ocean. Uh, can you imagine a, a knock on the door and you open it up and it's Spencer Tracy. And he to say, uh, may, can I use your phone? Well, how do you handle this? Well, the door opens, and in walks Arthur Treacher. Now, now, <laughs> Treacher is really kind of a mythical character. You know, he really is. He's been thousand movies, and just about two months before, I had seen him on a late, 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 late movie, wearing a therapy, and carrying a chute, and looking vaguely pained, and above it all. And he was, he was, he really was. He was looking out of the backseat of this Isada Fracini, looking bugged. And the Asada Fraccini was going downhill, and the chauffeur had fallen out of the car. And he was playing with absolute plumb. The car was going downhill. He was not going to raise a hand. You see, he was a gentleman's gentleman, and they do not touch steering wheels of cars. And he's sitting in the back there, and he walks into my dressing room looking exactly like that. And he looks at me and says, oh, by George Arnaudio, it's, it's Archer Freecher. You know, the butler, I expected a tray. Well, he's George Arnold, of course, why not? Of course, absolutely. You're that nut. <laughs> it's not easy to be called a nut, you know, by a myth. It's Jupiter coming down to say, oh, you're that idiot. I know you. Of course, and he flutters away up to Parnassus or Euphrates or wherever it is that they go, you know, or Olympia. Oh, of course, we're not nut. And then he took a look at the girl who works with me. Just a brief pause. Before he walked out, he looked at her in the eyes, Oh, poor George, what ho And left. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying over his the crook of his arm a Malacca cane. How do you like that? And he was also wearing a whisket. I haven't seen a guy wear a whisket outside of the ads in a thousand years a whisket. And he had that, that quantity of a man. Who, if he had said, Sir, you need a good caning to within an inch of your life. He not only could have given them caning, he had the cane to do it. And he was prepared to do it. I'll horse whip you within an inch of your life, sir. Howdy, sweat. What ho? Now, speaking of horse whipping, this is WOR, AM at FM, New York. Hit the whoopee button, please. <laughs> The Champagne of Bottle Beer That's Miller High Life The Happy Sound is about famous Miller High Life beer That has soared in popularity Because millions more recognize the traditional quality and heritage Of an unequaled, unchanging, truly great beer Wherever people are living better, you'll find Miller High Life in handy take-home cans, on tap, or in the familiar crystal-clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest, ask for Miller High Life, the champagne of bottle beer, sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. shut up. It's a very loud commercial. Uh, Shall we do a subtle one here? How can you do a subtle commercial for a motorcycle? You know, as far as I know, this is the first time uh, motorcycles have entered the world of uh, general advertising. Uh, I I don't know if anybody's advertising outside of, you know, magazines. Uh, The motorcycle we are advertising, of course, is the Honda, and in particular, Fleischmann Honda. If you're preparing or thinking, even remotely, seriously, of buying yourself a motorcycle, contact... Fleischmann Honda, because uh, they're the largest Honda dealers in the East. They have a superb service department. They have the entire line of Hondas on, on uh, tap there, including uh, the competition models, all the way down to the little fuchsia colored ones, you know, for the chicks and the vinyl raincoats, so on. But uh, they have them all, and this is Fleischman Honda. And the one, the place that I go to is out on Queens Boulevard in Woodside. Uh, One mile west of New Macy's. You've probably been near there. Uh, By the way, the Honda that I ride, in case uh, you're doubtful about the fact that whether I do or don't, is the 305CC Super Hawk. A very angry Honda. And not recommended for elderly ladies with uh, false dentures. Let's see, we have uh, Long Beach. (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. I'll shake you right loose, I'll tell you. Uh, That's a grotesque thought. Uh, Long Beach. Long Beach Boulevard. There's one in West Islip on Sunrise Boulevard, Sunrise Highway, and one in Bayshore. And the new one, it's just out on the North Shore in Douglaston, Long Island. Fleischman Honda on Northern Boulevard in Douglaston. Okay? Now, we also have Rover with us, if you prefer to travel in exquisite style. The uh, Rover 2000 TC. I am amazed at how many people are talking about this car. They even brought it up on the uh, the uh, that show that I was on last night, and uh, yeah, somebody mentioned it. Who was it? Ann Jackson? How about that? Wouldn't you like to be so filthy rotten rich that you give as a gift to somebody a new Rover just so they don't get mad? That's what Eli Wallach gave to Ann Jackson last night, according to Ann Jackson on that show that I was on on TV, and uh, and and, and, and uh, he looked at her the MC of the show looked and says Rover what's a Rover and I, I didn't I, you know it's like saying dirigible what's a Zeppelin uh, this is a, a, a fantastic car and the Rover 2000 TC is particularly engineered for American driving which means it has a little more horsepower uh, it'll hang on the turnpikes and uh, whip along at 80 miles an hour if you're that type without even breathing hard beautiful design Disc brakes, and it's made to last. Rover 2000. Oh, and uh, let's see, we've got to mention the limelight. Oh, by the way, speaking of the limelight, uh, I keep getting letters from people asking if I can make reservations at the limelight, which I can't, and I don't want to. Uh, However, uh, as a word of advice, almost everybody who comes down to the limelight on a Saturday night, if you're thinking about it and you don't have a reservation, uh, gets in in one way or another. They make a terrific effort to get people in down there, and usually there's about a half dozen people who chicken out, uh, who don't show. Uh, they always keep a few extra seats and so on. So if you are running the, if you're, you know, if you, if you'd like to run the uh, the gamut, if you if you figure you'd like to come into New York and make the limelight scene tomorrow night, uh, the odds are excellent that you will get a seat. And if you want to know where it is, it's down right in the heart of the pulsating. Village. I mean, you know, passion flows like a rich, deep river of, uh, uh, down the streets there. It's, uh, it's the village. And it's Seventh uh, Avenue South. You come right down Seventh Avenue. And there it is. The limelight. People keep going around looking for a place called the, the uh, lighthouse. And they wind up somewhere where they give free clothes out. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a fact. Everybody keeps calling it. It is the limelight. Don't ask me why they call it that. It's the limelight, and we'll be down there, and I'm going to do my famous pantomime uh, tomorrow night, which has gotten me into a lot of trouble on other and previous occasions. Last week, we got into a little misunderstanding. Two of the Greeks didn't show up. Uh, We had lined up for our Greek course. You know that Greek wine? Even though it tastes like turpentine, it does it to them. And uh, they didn't show... And so this week we are planning our famous recreation, totally in pantomime, of what we call our uh, Neo-Electra series. And I think you'll find it superb. It comes out in the first half of the show. So if you listen, there's just a lot of gasping and wheezing and yelling, and people knocking over ketchup bottles and squeaking, and ladies uh, uh, sounding embarrassed. You can hear the police coming in and all of that. That's because the first half of the show will be in pantomime tomorrow night. We'll be here from uh, 10.30 until midnight. Okay? Limelight. And, uh, I'm, you know, I, I look all, all week I look forward to going down and doing that show. All week. Uh, there's, there's something devilish about an audience. It's, uh, it gives a whole different flavor to the world, you know? Can you imagine a, a ball game? Have you ever seen a ball game being played in front of nobody? I played them. It's an eerie feeling. Uh, when the only cheers come from the coach at the third baseline... You stand on second if you've belted a double up the scoreboard. It takes all the pizzazz out of the life that you're living. And that uh, we will be at the limelight tomorrow. Oh, you know, speaking of pizzazz, all right, let's get back to reality here. I, am I the only ex-kid who lived under the, uh, under the myth? You know, speaking of myths, kids always have these myths about uh, uh, whatever the person's last words are, you've got to do it. Uh, did you ever have the golf ball myth at all in your world that inside a golf ball, there is a liquid center, and it's either fantastically poisonous or it explodes? You ever have that myth? Did you ever have that thing going? You didn't have that thing going? Well, we were deadly afraid of golf balls, and whenever kids really to really wanted to play, well, no, we didn't have the acid one going. I, no, our myth did not say that it was acid. That may be the eastern version of it. The midwestern version of the golf ball myth was that the stuff that was in the middle of golf balls, you know, it's this liquid center around them, was poisonous and or it would blow up if you unwrapped the golf ball. It would explode. Well, whenever a kid wanted to really walk that narrow, thin line of danger, he would threaten to throw a golf ball in the fire. Or he would take his scalp knife and start cutting off the cover of a golf ball, speeding it back, see, and slowly, you know, the golf ball is made up of, of about a 27 million mile long rubber band, you know, that's tightened, real tight, it's a longer, he would start unrolling that little rubber band, and it would get skinnier and skinnier, and all the other kids, no, no, stop it, it's like, ah, oh, oh, it's going to blow up, wow oh. and eventually, uh, the kid would either, either, uh, either blow up the crowd, uh, or else chicken out. And that's usually what happened. He chickened out. And we have this great myth about that. Did you ever have a. And, and oh, one thing I must say, I am delighted to report now. That, am I the only guy that believed that? You didn't believe that at all, Al? When well, you had a very dumb bunch of kids you grew up with, because uh, we had a complete mythology about various things that if you ask your old man about it, he'd look at you like you were a nut, you know? And say, Dad, the golf balls blow up. He'd say, oh, come on, get off my back. Golf balls blow up. And we believed that it was totally accepted. There was another thing that was accepted, and it had to do with, with condensed milk cans. And do you know about that one? That if you throw a condensed milk can in the fire, forget it. The neighborhood is gone. It'll just explode. Uh, the neighborhood will be blown up. That was an earlier nuclear fission concept. And is there a... An ex-kid out there whose crowd believed in that? I want to hear just one kid who says, yeah, yeah. Do they still believe it? That's something better. Let's do some technical research on that. Is there an ex-kid out there or a kid? I want a kid. I don't want an ex-kid. I want a kid. Is there a genuine operating kid who is still walking around scratching and busting out, you know, and pimples and stuff? And is there a kid out there who still believes that golf balls blow up? I'd just like to hear from one kid and uh, and see what he says about that. Find out if, the, if this myth is still... Uh, and is it a myth? That's a good question. Have you ever thrown a golf ball into a fire? Have you thought about that? Well, we had, we had another one going, as I said, about the, about the cannon. I remember one day, you know, you go through these periods of destruction. I learned something about why guys have wars. One afternoon, I am down in the basement. And there's a lot of stuff down there in a junk, and we had we had a we had a shelf on the side of the wall under the, under the steps. So my mother put all the ball jars on the canned jars of of, uh, of uh, tomatoes and all that jazz. And she had about five cans of carnation milk. And I've got a can, one of the little ones now. And that, you know that that, that, that uh, you know that great feeling of illicit doing something rotten. That feeling of really doing something, that you know, is a terrible thing. I took the can of carnation milk, and I'm down in the basement. It's raining out. I'm by myself. My kid brother is playing in somebody else's basement somewhere. My mother's not home. My old man isn't home, and all you hear is the sound of clocks ticking in the house. And I'm a sweaty kid down in the basement. I have looked at all my dirty magazines, and I've hit them again, you know. <laughs> and I... Uh, and I'm I'm just I'm looking for you know, I'm looking for scenes, I'm looking for trouble. Not really trouble, I'm looking for the precipice, the abyss. We always search for this. Freud talked about it, you know, searching from that for that void. That that thing. You notice there's not one kid out there? The kids are too hip, you know. I, I, I know there's not one kid out there who believes this. If there if there is a kid who believes this, he's sitting by the phone out there. He's too chicken to admit it. He thinks that I will make fun of him. <laughs> That's better. You know, he's so... Oh, I don't want to say it Gee, him. are a chef. Don't, don't break all my illusions. Don't cut it out. You know? And I am down in the basement, and I'm creaking, creeping around by the furnace. Now, we had a furnace in our basement, which was unbelievably handy. You could do all kinds of things. Not only have fires in it that kept the house warm, but you could start fires in there, just burning things. You know, just fires i bet there's not one place in most kids' house today where you can safely set a fire. You know, you take a match and light something and burn it. Unless you've got a fireplace. And I'm creeping around. Oh, is there a kid out there? Yeah? I-, I-, I can tell in a minute if he's a pony. Hello, kid? Yeah, put it on. Hello, kid? Hi. Hello, kid? Yeah. Uh, what about golf balls? Well, there's a myth here that uh, the acid, there's an acid core. Yeah? That so when you take the golf ball apart... Uh-huh. You get this little ball of acid. Yeah. And if you cut it open and get it on your hands, it'll eat away your hands. And you're done. Yeah. And, it, and it'll just eat right up completely. Yeah. And you'll probably not live. True. That's true. And uh, do you also have a uh, a a great fear that if you ever get a hold of a certain kind of pencil and you get it on your tongue, an indelible yeah, pencil, yeah. that it will All kill you? Pencils. Yeah, and and it's poison, right? Yeah. And you'll you just won't live I'll out. Turn past. purple. Turn purple. That's it. Exactly. You will turn purple, and that's it. But, you know. And, and your mother comes home, and there you are. You're laying there, purple. Yeah. It's because you weighed an indelible pencil. Uh, did, did you? What What other uh, deadly things are out there that you fight against? Is there anything else like that? Inks. Huh? Kind of inks. Oh yeah, inks are deadly. Yeah and uh if you get if you get ink on your tongue, right yeah, and if you get it under your skin, did you ever have that one that if you write on the back of your hand with with your pen no and and if you you know like you 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 draw an anchor on the back of your hand and you pierce the skin and you get the ink under your skin, mm. it could very well be the end of you, <laughs> I never heard that one. Well, you better think about that one, kid. I will. I saw at least three kids go west on that one. Hey, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, my name is uh, Schaefer. Yeah? When it's German, and when it's translated from uh, uh-huh. German to English, it means shepherd. Oh, really? I'll bet you're in trouble, too. I am. <laughs> okay, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you see, that is, that is a deeply held belief. Now, kid, are you out there, Schaefer? You listening, kid? At long last, they are not going to laugh at us anymore. I have before me scientific information that has come in Science American, Scientific American, a very official magazine, and this was given out by the people who make uh, All Might. This is All Might News, and All Might is a top-flight electronics outfit, kid. Listen to this. The centers of golf balls are contained under very high pressures from 2,000 to 2,500 pounds per square inch. For years, children have believed that cutting into these balls will have a tremendous explosive effect. Possibly acid will, uh, er- uh, will be uh, exuded, which can be deadly. The kids are right. That's the answer, I <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that, you know? Because for years I've always walked around golf ball displays with a little sense of fear that one day the entire display at Abercrombie and Fitch is going to go up and blow up the whole East Side. Now there's a whole a whole series of kid myths along this type. And and, and and there was there was a terrible fear one time that spread throughout the Warren G. Harding the, the uh the cockamamie scourge. Now uh Uh, that is a phrase I never heard until I came out here to the east. In the east, they call it cockamamie, and that's this transfer. You know, the thing that you you make wet and you put on the back of your hand, and you peel the paper off, and there it is, this picture of uh, Old Faithful. And underneath it says Old Faithful. And you walk around, you show it, Old Faithful. <laughs> you know, they had great selections for, for the things like, like Old Faithful. They had Grand Canyon. I had the Grand Canyon once on the back of my head. Did you ever see this kind of thing that was, was very popular for about, for about a year? It was, it was uh, related to the cockamamie. We had the cockamamie scourge. Somebody passed along the rumor. It probably was a, a killjoy type teacher that this contained, you get blood poisoning. From cockamamies. You get blood poisoning. And, uh, you know, there was hardly a kid that didn't have at least seven of them on him at any given time. You put them in very strategic places a lot of times. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you know, that's another story which I won't even go into here, places I put these transfers just to see if it would take, you know. And it did. It was just great, fantastic. It was was an early attempt at uh, truly dynamic pop art. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we used to show each other, that, you know, our transfers. And we'd hide in the bushes. We had transfers, all kinds of... And we used to try to talk Esther Jane Albury into putting transfers on her. But, uh, you know, on girls, you should put them on her hand, you know, something like that. Say, Come on, Esther, look where we got them. And she... <laughs> well, we yeah, had the whole cockamamie myth that if you got the... if There the, the was the blue ink, I think. It was the blue. Kids are very... Sp- Afraid of two colors ink, blue and green, and sometimes the purple is bad, uh, like the uh, indelible pencil. Well, a thing became very popular. I don't know whether this was just in our area or whether it was also out here in the east. There was a thing you held under the sun. you would ne- you would not know what it would be. It was some kind of photographic process, really. And you would hold it under the sun. It had a little piece of paper. You would strip the paper off. You'd get this thing, say, with bubble gum. Yeah, I think it came with bubble gum. That's right. It was a card-like. And you would strip the paper off. And underneath it would say, mystery picture, inside. Hold under sun for four minutes and then soak in warm water. You remember that? And you'd strip the paper off and you'd hold it under the sun, say, for about four minutes or five minutes. And then you'd take it into the bathroom and you'd stick it under the hot water and you would wait. And out would come a picture of Dizzy Dean, uh, yeah, or, or there would be a uh, there was there was one that I remember specifically because I was astounded. I did not realize these guys knew my grandmother. My grandmother had a picture of this Indian, and uh, I remember as a kid always looking at it. It was the worst picture I think in the Western world. There was this Indian sitting on a horse. Did you ever see that picture? An Indian sitting on a horse, and there was a sunset behind him, and he's sort of looking down, and you can see the feathers, and he's in he's in silhouette, and underneath it it says the end of the trail. I don't know who painted this turkey. Uh, I have no idea except that my grandmother had this in her bedroom, and she would look at it, and I'd look in there, I'd look at this Indian scene, and my grandmother her her eyes would all puddle up whenever she. I didn't know she knew any Indians. I had no idea about that, but there was this end of the trail, and one time I took my cockamamie and I heated it under the sun and I stripped it, and up comes this picture of the end. Underneath it says, end of the trail. Did you ever see that picture, or did I invent it? That's one of the, you know, have you ever thought about that, the universal pictures that everybody has seen? Who painted that? That's one of the most famous pictures. All Americans have seen that picture. End of the trail. Then there is another one too that is very similar to that. It's a whole bunch of horses. What is that one with all these horses? And underneath it, it says something like horse fair. The title of it is horse fair. Do you ever see that picture? Uh, this is another universal picture that I, that I, I um, you haven't seen that one. Well, maybe that's more out there where they know what horses are here. In the east, the horse is a thing that's on a merry-go-round at Coney Island, you know. But, uh, no, Horse Fair was was another one. Uh, There was another picture, too, that we used to see constantly that was on on practically every calendar at one time or another. Universal picture. Absolutely. And it was this chick standing in the water looking embarrassed. Uh, Horse Fair is by Rosa who? Bonheur? Rosa Bo- No horse fair No this, it is well who 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 did the end of the the end of the trail uh, That that uh, that is probably even more famous than the horse fair Then there was one about the dog What was the one about the dog Eighteen a big curly fuzzy looking dog and the dog looked like it knew more than a Supreme Court judge You know that kind of uh, anthropomorphism Where the dog was about to, to write the Constitution or come out with the Human Bill of Rights. You know, speaking about this nutty kind of, of sub-art, this is, this is really pop sub-art. Uh, it's, it's not art, it's, it's the stuff that people live by who they think it's art. They think it is art. Uh, there was an Indian, there was another one too. There was an Indian picture with an Indian with a big war bonnet up and he was in profile. I remember that picture. I saw that it was even on the back of gloves. It was on the front of, of, uh, of uh, yellow tablets with blue lines. This same Indian. I wonder who drew this. Can you imagine a guy actually sitting down there and he, he is drawing, he is painting the end of the trail and is destined to become one of the great all-time clichés forever? <laughs> and nobody knows his name. Absolutely. He's totally unknown. Speaking of, of uh, great art clichés... I got this spy, see? And he wrote to me, and he says, he has just been uh, in this place out in California, see? And he says he's walking through the store, and they have a whole big collection of uh, of lead statuettes that are gilt. Uh, they've been gilded, you know, lead. They cost uh, 59 cents, that kind of a big... That lawful art. You know that kind of lawful art that, that did you see in the dime store? The leopard, the black leopard made out of... Uh, porcelain or something, and he's got this gold chain with uh, imita- imitation rhinestones in the eyes. I wonder who it is who gets is Isn't that pretty? That is just beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> people have bought this because it was very... Uh, and, and he said that he, he got one of these statuettes. He said he had to buy it. Because here it is. It's a statuette of the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. You know, all these Marines putting the flag up and they're raising it. It's all guilt. He says it's terrible. And it's all, it's all, uh, it's a bad mold. And it's real rough. And it's guilt. And it looks real funny. And they're raising this thing up. And on the bottom, of course, it says, the flag raising at Iwo Jima. The Marines uh, on the shores of Tripolary. And all this is the whole business of with the Marines. And it's all in guilt. It's a big thing. He says it weighs four pounds. And it's real terrible. Ninety-eight cents. And on the bottom, it says, made in Japan. <laughs> Now that presents a fascinating picture. Can you imagine this little ex-Japanese GI working at a factory where they make lead uh, uh, raising the flag at Iwo Jima statues? And and he says he he says why he really bought this. He says all the eyes on the statue look rather odd. Maybe it's wishful thinking <laughs> or fantasy fulfillment. And the part of the guy he says and he's got this now I will tell you if. if if you think this is, uh, this is one of the great oddities I think people uh, love, it's one of the paradoxes that, that seem to go against our mind because I, I think the great ocean of the uh, subjective soul, the id, the superego, the ego, all these things that float down from our brain control us far more than, of course, this one little tiny, little minuscule jot up here that is called the mind or the intellect. I was in in Munich. I couldn't believe it. Here I'm in Munich, and I'm... Munich, do you know anything about Munich during World War II? Munich was about as bare as a a miniature golf course in February. I mean, it was leveled. Munich had... There must have been 5,000 air raids on Munich, and 97.9% of the town was destroyed. When I'm standing on the street in Munich, looking into the window of a toy shop, they had the most fantastic collection of U.S. World War II bomber planes on display, you couldn't believe it. There was the B-17, there was the B-24, the B-26, the B-25. Then there was a whole flight of P-38s, P-47s, and all made in Germany. And who was buying them? Germans. What? Huh? <laughs> I mean, the guy who just a few years ago was hiding in a hole, when the B-17s flew over, now he's buying uh, a toy B-17 made in Germany that's that that uh, I looked at that I couldn't believe it so I went into the I went into the toy store and I says uh, I says to say hey, those are I, I, I never saw anything like this you don't see this in American toys you know you see a few little planes and that but you know they're not so specifically so specifically identifiable you go into the dime store here and they've got a lot of plastic planes you know and they may have a little jet plane or something like that. but here was a world war two Bombing armada on display, and obviously they sold millions of them because it was everywhere I went after that I began to see them, they were all over Germany. And so I go into the store and I says, Say that can I see one of those? Uh, and the girl said, Are you interested in a P 38 or the P 47? And I says, uh, Well, uh, that one over there. She goes, Oh, you are talking, of course, about the lightning, and she knew all the names the lightning, the thunderbolt. The whole scene, and I take I take this lightning, and I look on the bottom. And it says "Made in Germany," and I I, I looked at this thing. And it was such a beautiful model. And I began to formulate a little theory in my mind that the very thing that we fear most, we secretly embrace the quickest. Uh, this is an old cliche, but you see it better in life. You know, kids are almost always afraid of the doctor. A subtle thing. They are. They're afraid of dentists and doctors. But what is it that kids play more? Than doctor, kids are continually playing doctor. Uh, what uh, we're all secretly afraid, you know, of all of a sudden finding ourselves on the, the third floor of some some very uh, esoteric hospital with the lights and all the things flashing and the machines. The most successful television shows in the history of TV have been medical shows. I'm just waiting for the day when finally there is an entire series played by uh Vince Edwards. He's out of work now, isn't he? I mean, old Central Hospital or wherever that hospital is. they finally did away with Ben Casey, and he's he's now he's reduced to reruns uh, <laughs> uh, i can you just see Ben Casey or uh, Vince Edwards now playing in the new series, this new dynamic series, the Camp Undertaker <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, it could be called uh it could be called Whistling Glades. And uh, there he is every day and the and each, each day there is a new episode. Uh some new glamorous uh loved one has arrived. And uh Vince what was his what would his name be? Um, uh, smiley thanatosis. Uh, smiley <laughs> and uh, old Smiley standing there, and it opens up and ta 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 cha cha cha. I think that thing would get a rating that would not stop. I've often thought, I've often thought of the dynamic, all uh, well, the uh, the dynamic orthodontist series It opens up with a light coming closer and closer to you. You see, and it, the theme is the sound of one of those drills going. Come by. Oh, we'll be here tomorrow night from ten thirty until midnight. The limelight. Be the first.